Thank you, Katie. That was, that was great. Thank you so much. Uh, both songs are so meaningful. There's a, a Latin phrase in Christian thinking, and the phrase, you should see it there on the screen, is quorum deo. It means something like in the presence of God or in the face, uh, before the face of God or, or before God is a literal way of saying it. The idea behind the phrase, the whole point of even having the phrase, is that we would live our lives in the presence of God. Everything we do is under the watch of God. And that's the whole idea of Titus chapter 2, which we're going to cover in one sermon this morning. The whole motivation for living a particular sort of life, for living a distinctive life, is so that what God has done in Christ might be made to look beautiful. It might be magnified. So that the gospel, what God has done in Christ, might be made much of. And one of the most important aspects of our renewal effort here at Monument Heights is being a distinct community, being a group of people that are readily and easily identifiable as Christians. And Titus 2 has some specific instruction for us to that end. It tells us that sound doctrine is the foundation for that distinct community. Sound doctrine is meant to form our lives before God. It is a, a type of teaching that, that aims to have us living for the sake of life in God. And it is that teaching of sound doctrine that forms a distinct community, a community of people who live quorum Deo, life before God. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and we'll begin right in verse 1. Titus is in the back of your New Testament, so toward the back of the Bible. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And remember what Paul is doing here. He's writing to a young pastor named Titus who's been left on the island of Crete, and he has a specific task to appoint elders and to set and establish the church, the young church that is there on the island of Crete. And so we pick up in Titus 2, verse 1, but as for you, and this is a singular you, speaking to Titus specifically, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So here's a command or a charge to Titus. Teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. And our whole five-part series in Titus is about sound doctrine. It's a phrase that occurs several times in the book. And it often has this idea of healthy teaching or, or, or how we've translated it here, sound doctrine. And we'll see an example of what that doctrine is in verses 11 through 14 this morning. We'll spend some time when we get there. But for now, let me say a couple of things about just this initial command to Titus. Teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. First, the church cannot abandon faithful teaching. The church cannot abandon faithful teaching. You might wonder what that means, but we live in a world where the pressure is growing to abandon faithful teaching. So, for example, what does it mean to be faithful in teaching? Well, I think it means things like this. Consistent and careful exposition of Scripture week in and week out. That's something we're trying to do. 
letting Scripture speak, actually what the words mean or, or meant, and then what they mean for us today, not just trying to wiggle our way out of uncomfortable passages or figure out new ways to reject the stuff we don't like, or just simply ignoring it all for some idea of love that doesn't really jive with the Bible. There's all sorts of ways that we try to escape faithful teaching. It also means not being afraid of statements of belief like confessional statements. Now, Baptists sometimes have this phrase, no creed but the Bible, and I heartily affirm it. There is no creed higher than Scripture, but at the same time, Baptists have always been a confessional people, people who had creeds and confessions. And so as a pastor, I want you to know things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. I want you to know the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, which was the very first statement of faith here at Monument Heights when it was formed. And it's an important historic Baptist statement of faith from the 1800s. I want you to know the Abstract of Principles, which still serves as the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary statement of faith. All the professors at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary still sign it. It was the first written Southern Baptist confession of faith in existence, and half of our articles of faith are directly taken from it. So I want you to know those things. I think they're important. These things can't simply be dismissed or considered the realm of specialists or theologians or pastors. It's not just some esoteric questions about who God might be. These are actually practical statements of faith that lead to a life before God. That's the whole idea of sound doctrine. So this is prerogative number one for pastors. Teach sound doctrine. That's what Paul says to Titus, and you'll find the same encouragement to the young Timothy in the preceding two letters of First and Second Timothy. And that means pastors, and here I speak to myself, but also inform you of what you should expect from me. Pastors must be resident theologians able to accurately and faithfully handle the Word of God. We're not here to be clever. We're not here to give some life advice. Unfortunately, we all know that there is tremendous pressure not to follow this exhortation, not to do what Paul says here, teach what accords with sound doctrine. See, working in Scripture and doctrine isn't easy. It's not easy to make it relatable. People don't always like hearing it. It's not always easy to make it interesting. It doesn't always seem appealing. So lots of pastors feel compelled, and I feel the same pressure. We feel compelled to go elsewhere, to figure out a way to be more, quote, engaging or to be more relevant to people. And the result is those sermons become not expositions of Scripture, but stories and tips with some Bible verses simply sprinkled in. Think about it this way. When you go to the doctor, you expect her to be well-versed in human anatomy and biology, right? I would hope so. You expect her to be keeping up with current medical research, to actually know the findings of, say, the last five years, as opposed to just knowing, knowing the medical field from 1970, 1980, right? You, you want current medical knowledge. In short, you expect your doctor to be an expert. So it goes in the church. Teaching is serious business, and one who stands in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday ought to be competent and faithful. 
It is very serious business when you're talking about even teaching just 20 people or 15 people. You're responsible in that moment for saying, this is what God has said. And as that number increases and the influence increases, as we look here, we have maybe 100 here this morning. So we're talking about talking about what God says, and I'm telling you, this is what God says. That's serious business because it affects your life. It affects everything you do. It's not something to be taken lightly. Continuing this doctor analogy here, and I'm borrowing from theologian Kevin Van Hooser here. Through sound doctrine, pastors are prescribing heavenly medicine. He writes in what I think is worth quoting him at length here. He writes, doctrine is a prescription for the health of the body of Christ. Yet many churchgoers refuse to take their medicine preferring to swill the low intellectual calorie, sickly sweet soft drinks of popular culture. It is largely thanks to the doctoral work of pastor theologians that sound doctrine, heavenly medicine from above, gets into the bloodstream of the body of Christ. So Sunday after Sunday, it is vital that we are dispensing with or that we're, we're handing out this heavenly wisdom and not just human wisdom. The second thing I want to say about this one verse here is I want to say this is that do, this is um, telling us that doctrine is not just head knowledge, right? It's not less than head knowledge, but it is also so much more. The head knowledge is foundational, it's necessary, it's indispensable. We can't follow Jesus if we don't know who he is or what he teaches. Or take an example that's relevant to ongoing conversations in our own congregation. We can't effectively or rightly do missions without a biblical foundation for what missions is and why we do missions. We can't simply say we're doing missions and not have any understanding of what it is. But doctrine that doesn't lead to transformation is not sound doctrine. Okay, so doctrine in Scripture always leads to something else. It's not just so you know something in your head. Doctrine that doesn't lead to doxology is dead. Doctrine without transformation is just trivia. Doctrine and devotion, those two components are inseparable. And they're inseparable in Scripture. So you can't really drive a wedge between them. So being a distinct community, according to this first verse, means that we are founded on sound doctrine that influences every single aspect of our lives. It is a life oriented to the triune God in every single way. Now, Paul's going to give us instructions for five specific groups of people in verses 2 through 10. The groups are older men, older women, young women, young men, and slaves. It pretty much encompasses everyone you could have expected to be in the church in Crete at that time. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the specifics and talk about the different pieces here because I don't really think that's what's most important. These verses explain how to live life as a Christian in a particular society, in the world. And the primary concern here, this is Paul's primary concern, is how the community reflects sound doctrine and the truth of the gospel. Each and every one of his specific commands are so that the word of God might not be slandered. 
That's all going to be spelled out, by the way, in verses 11 through 14, that the gospel is the central concern here. And like I said, we'll spend some time in 11 through 14. But, but before we go into 2 through 10, let me, let me say something else about it. There is tremendous freedom in the Christian life because Christ has set us free. Uh, tremendous freedom. Not to, not to be bound by laws or even the, the structures of the world, but it is necessary that that freedom, that license, doesn't become a means by which the gospel is slandered. So look, in Christ you're free, but we don't want to go out and, and malign the name of Christ by living a life in the name of freedom. And what we see is sound doctrine throughout this passage changes our marriage and our parenting, all of our relationships. Sound doctrine encourages self-control and purity and kindness. All of this is there. And before we read the passage, I should say one more thing. Paul isn't just laying down blanket moral statements for here. For example, he's going to speak to slaves in verse 9. He's not instructing everyone to become a slave, nor is he endorsing slavery. In fact, we see in like the letter to Philemon that the gospel subverts the culture. It, it subverts even things like slavery, but, but then again, you don't find in Scripture any revolutionary statements about it, which is why people sometimes found support in Scripture for such horrid practices as slavery. But what Paul is saying here is that as a Christian in a society where one finds themselves in slavery, as some in the church in the first century did, this is the proper behavior. Elsewhere, you can find him speaking to masters and saying to them, you don't act like everyone else, but this is how you must act within this society. The same can be said for the specifics about women in this passage. Paul is thinking in terms of what is laudable, what is praiseworthy in that particular culture. And he's saying it is necessary that you live life so that your lifestyle does not slander the gospel wherever you find yourself. So let's look at verses 2 through 10, and we'll just take these all together. And remember that main thrust, that the word of God would not be stained. Pick up with me in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Here's one of the reasons. So that, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay, there's the first one. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then he returns his attention here to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Here's another reason. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, his concern is about the gospel. His concern is about the Christian message. Verse 9. Bond servants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And here it is once more. So that in everything 
they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, the concern is all about adorning or making beautiful this doctrine of our salvation, of what God has done in Christ. And so all of these things are very specific to whatever culture Christians are in. Christians live distinct lives whatever culture they are in. That looks different for us in 2021 in Richmond, Virginia, than it does in first century Greece. It looks different in an Eastern culture today than it looks here in our Western culture. But part of being a distinct community for us here in 2021 in Richmond still means reflecting unblemished living in society, reflecting a style of life that does not bring slander on the gospel. So it, so it would mean things like holding our tongue and being patient because we're not in a very patient culture. It would mean not being so reactionary, but being self-controlled. Very much some of the same things Paul was saying then, because we're so reactionary in this culture, aren't we? See, all of this is about how the gospel is perceived by the watching world. And all of this, this lifestyle, is rooted in the teaching of the gospel. That is, what God has already done in Christ. Look at verse 11. For, remember that connecting word, because, so he's connecting everything he's just said. Here's the reason he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Live this way because God has acted in Christ. See that two through 10 are all, all what, what you do as a response to what God has done in Christ. And remember, this pattern is consistent all throughout Scripture. Here is what God has done. Now this is how you live in response to what God has done. To take a biblical example from Exodus 20. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now you shall be my people and have no other gods before me. What God has done precedes what God commands. So Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. It has been made known to us in Christ. It has happened in Christ with the result that salvation is being brought to all people, to all creation. And he goes on, he says, God's grace to us in Christ is the very catalyst for us living distinct lives. In verse 12, he says, it trains us to live distinct lives. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when in the present age, wherever you are, wherever you are. And we live this way now because we are always keeping an eye on the future. The reason you don't see Paul starting a revolution on slavery here is because the Christian notion is that time is short and the Lord Jesus will set everything right when he returns. Now look, that's a subversive message. And it's the reason Christians have often been the, the people behind abolitionist movements. It's the reason Christians have seen the need for equality among all people. All of this stuff has been important for Christians, but it changes the way that we live in the in-between, in the time between God's action in Christ and between the time when Jesus returns as king. 
So that's a subversive message to say, look, we are citizens of a different kingdom, and we believe our king is the ruler of all nations, and he's going to return and set things right. That means we live different now. But it doesn't mean we're revolutionaries. It just means that our lives are distinct, and our lives take on this new character. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, here's a good, clear example of Christ Jesus being identified as Savior and God. Okay, so sometimes people say Jesus is never identified in Scripture as God. This verse is one of the clearer examples I know of. But what, in other words, what Paul's saying here is this. Live distinct lives now, all the while being watchful for the return of the King. So that's how you live. How do we live today? We live distinct lives now that cannot be slandered, that are unblemished in the face of our culture, all the while knowing that Christ will return and all the wrongs will be righted. And how is it possible for us to live distinct lives? Well, precisely because Christ has made it possible. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Notice it's him who redeems us. He gave himself to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christianity is the only world religion I know that does not say you purify yourself. Now, I know sometimes people get confused and they think that's what we teach, but that's not what Christianity teaches. Very clearly here, Christ gives himself for us to buy us back, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and then to purify us. How can you be distinct? How can you be pure? How can you be blameless? How can I be blameless or zealous for good works? How can my heart actually want to do those things? Do you see the connection? Christ redeemed us to purify us. Christ acted so that we can be distinct so that we can renounce the ways of the world, so that we can pursue godliness. In case you haven't learned this yet, we can't do this on our own. It's too hard. We'll fail a thousand times over. But this is how the gospel works. Christ redeemed us so that we can. See, salvation isn't just about forgiveness. It's also about deliverance. Christ breaks the power of sin. He breaks the powers of darkness on us. That's why you get all of this language like in Colossians of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Or in Ephesians 2, that you were once bound by these principles, but now God has set you free and raised you to sit in the heavenlies. Okay, that's not about going to heaven. That's about a new identity and a new reality in our life now. He says we're seated with him in the heavenlies now. So the power of sin is broken so that we can do something different, so that we can live distinct lives. That's how it works. Then Paul gives this final exhortation to Titus, verse 15. Declare these things. Okay, everything I've said, declare those things. Exhort and rebuke. So exhort would be like encourage, challenge, but rebuke would be a corrective aspect. But remember, it's always for restoration. It's always to bring people back. We saw that last week. Rebuke with all authority. 
Why? Because you're saying, thus saith the Lord. You're, you're not speaking out of your own authority, Titus. You're speaking out of the Lord's authority. And so Paul says to this young Titus, let no one disregard you. Not because you're so great, Titus, but because God has called you to this. So distinct communities begin with sound teaching, sound doctrine being proclaimed. Again, this is why preaching is so central to the life of the church. This is why the reformers said that a true church must have preaching. It's one of the defining marks of a true church. A church that does not have the right preaching of God's word is no church, according to the reformers. Preaching sound doctrine creates the atmosphere for a distinct community. I would actually argue that it's impossible to have a distinct community apart from the preaching of God's word. It is God's word that changes and molds and shapes and forms the people of God. It is God's word that is the means by which the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts to do something different. I know of no other way. It's bizarre, isn't it? That, that in our day, even in 2021, uh, someone's going to get up and stand behind a piece of wood with a Bible, and they're going to speak to other people, and somehow, in the mystery of all of that, the Holy Spirit is going to stir in people's hearts. In spite of my frailties and imperfections, in spite of the audience's frailties and imperfections, the Holy Spirit still speaks and sometimes radically changes lives. It's amazing. It's really incredible to think about it. Now, I want to tell you about Geneva, Switzerland, during the Reformation. The architect of this city during that period, uh, the, the one who was responsible for really the governance of the city, is a name you've probably heard, uh, one of those men with long beards named John Calvin. Calvin essentially envisioned a distinct Christian community that was like a gym, a place where Christians were constantly being shaped and formed and strengthened in the faith. Key components for Calvin were daily prayer at the church every morning, two public worship services a week where there was preaching, encouragement of twice, da twice daily um, domestic worship in your, your house with your family or if you live alone privately or with whatever staff you might have in your house. I know none of us have that probably, but, but people in his day did. And constant exposure to sound doctrine. And so Calvin would write catechisms, which are question and answer, memorizations, and he would write confessions. And, and they had this in Geneva. And the whole city became radically changed by the word of God. Bonhoeffer had a similar vision some 400 years later when Hitler took power in Germany uh, Bonhoeffer set up a counter, uh, a counter resistance uh, that, that was called the Confessing Church. And, and his vision was essentially that Hitler is doing something that's political and secular and of this world, but the church must be shaped by the word of God. And they have to sure up their foundations so that they can survive in that particular moment in history. My vision is essentially those things. In my vision that I've brought here at Monument Heights is part Calvin's Geneva, part Bonhoeffer's vision, uh, part another a guy who wrote the Benedict Option. You can find those books in our library. And part historic Baptist. 
blending all of those together to say, this is what it means to be the church. See, I long for us not just to be a church full of people or a popular, influential church. Those would be great things, I suppose, but they're also very dangerous things. I don't even necessarily want to be the church everyone loves. I believe God is calling us instead, and here's what I would lay out in two sentences, to be a distinct community of intentional Christian formation. And I believe our mission behind that vision is to produce believers who are oriented to the triune God in every area of their lives. So that's a combination of where God has placed us, right here on the corner of Monument and Libby, the people that God has brought us and who God has gifted us to be, and then finally what passions the Holy Spirit is stirring among us. So just imagine that vision, a distinct community of intentional Christian formation. Imagine Monument Heights not just being another church, but being a distinct community founded on sound doctrine that leads to living all of life, quorum Deo, before the face of God. I truly believe this is what God is calling us to. My real question for you this morning would be this. Do you want to be part of that? What I can tell you is it will be different. It will be challenging. But I think it will change each of us so much that we'll wonder why we hadn't been doing it all along. Let me pray for us. Lord, you alone are capable of moving and shaping us. And that is our prayer, that you would move and shape and change us. Lord, we've seen a strong encouragement from Titus chapter 2 to base our lives on sound doctrine so that we might live lives that are blameless wherever we've been called to live until the return of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would sink this teaching deep into our hearts. I pray that this wouldn't just be head knowledge, but you would stir our affections, that our hearts and our zeal and our love for you would be moved this morning so that we might live distinct lives. Lord, I pray for Monument Heights that you would begin to shape and mold us and form us to be a distinct community. I pray that we would be intentional about being shaped around the word of God. And that when all is said and done, whatever comes of this particular local church, whatever comes of our lives, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. That your name would be made to look great. That what you've done for us in Christ would be magnified. And that whatever else could be said about Monument Heights, I pray that the one thing that could be said would be that we are bringing you glory in this world. We ask these things in the name of Jesus who has redeemed us and purified us. Amen.